morning, let's look to Romans, Romans chapter 9, and we will concentrate our time on uh, Romans chapter 9, verses 18 to 24, praise God for Leviticus and the reading of God's word in the Torah, the Pentateuch, and that you see God's precision, and I want to stay there with Kind of what we'll be looking at in Romans. We'll be looking at God's divine election. Uh, it is the second part of what we were discussing last time we were together. Uh, this morning, what I would like to do, I want to read uh, Romans chapter 9. I would like to read uh, verses 18 to 24 just to give us a context. So let's look at uh, Romans chapter 9. I'll be reading from the New American Standard Bible Version. Uh, Verse 18. So then he has mercy on whom he desires and he hardens whom he desires. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault for who resists his will? On the contrary, who are you, O man, who answers back to God? The thing molded will not say to the molder. Why did you make me like this? Will it or does not the potter have a right over the clay to make from the same lump? One vessel for honorable use and another for common use. What if God, although willing to demonstrate his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? And he did so to make known the riches of his glory upon vessels of mercy, which he prepared beforehand for glory. Even us, whom he also called, not from among Jews only, but also from among the Gentiles. And God bless the reading of his word. Uh, last time we were together, we, we looked at and we studied God's prerogative, his will, his desire, his design uh, to grant mercy and compassion to whomever he chooses. And then also we looked at his uh, working in hardening whomever he wants to harden. And we looked at this within the context as we have been understanding Israel. Who is God's true Israel? How will God deal with the Israelites? How will God deal with the Gentiles? And what is his salvation plan for each? And we have discovered to this point that he certainly has the same salvation redemptive plan for both Israel and the Gentiles. And yet there is a number from among the Israelites, uh, from among Israel, the nation that he will deal with specifically. So we're interested and continuing to look at that. Uh, but here in this particular context, Paul is directly addressing the Israelites where they are. And by where they are, meaning where they are spiritually, where they are in relation to what they have abandoned, uh, where they are in relation to what they ought to have faith in, what they ought to lay hold in. And certainly the cross is beginning to be something that is that comes into view. It is uh, an emphasis in this passage, uh, much like it is, as our brother just read, much like it is an emphasis for us every single day and every Sunday that we gather together, we focus on not only the cross, but the resurrection. And my point is, that is what Paul holds out to the Israelites. That's what he holds out to the nation Israel, and he holds it out to the Gentiles as well. All that is said here so far is very closely related To Romans chapter two and in Romans chapter two, Paul demonstrates that the Israelites have no reason to boast before God in light of the fact that they are even more guilty than the Gentiles. They wag their finger at because they have much more revelation concerning who God is related to the law, related to the promises and related to the covenants. And at the beginning of this chapter, in Romans chapter 9, specifically verses 1 uh, to 5, Paul deals with that same thing. He deals with the fact that the Gentiles are a people whom God will eventually grant this clear testimony to. And in the chronological sense, in the timeline that we're in, he's beginning to do so and has begun to do so. But Paul makes it very clear that. In terms of God's redemptive plan, he went to the Jews first and he gave them all this revelation. He gave them the covenants. He gave them the promises. He gave them the fathers. He gave them the temple and all these things he gave them. They rejected. 
But I'll also say that Paul is working his way back to what the expectation is for the Gentiles as we look to not only what's left in Romans 9, but as we work through Romans 10 and Paul defines what the true word of faith is that will save man's soul, but also what he expects, what God expects the attitude to be from the Gentiles toward the Israelites, but also from the Gentiles about their own salvation. And so he's slowly working his way through what God's redemptive plan is for Israel, but working up to what he has for the Gentiles. So it's not that Paul vindicates or lets Gentile unbelievers off the hook, so to speak. He doesn't let them off the hook. He doesn't vindicate them and say, you know what? You all didn't have the promises. You all didn't have the covenants. You all didn't have the fathers. And so on that basis, you're not guilty. That's not what he's doing. And he didn't do that in Romans 1. As a matter of fact, what he is showing that in no circumstance among Jews or Gentiles is God on trial for his actions related to what fallen man has done. So God is not on trial because man is alienated from God. God did not alienate himself from man. So because that's the case, and we talked about that a little bit last time, because that's the case, God, therefore, stands over every man and, uh, and all of mankind and renders a guilty verdict. And then he sets the terms of freedom. And so in verse 19, specifically, Paul takes on he takes on a question. And we talked about this a little bit last time. He takes on the kind of question that was related to the kind of thinking that the Israelites had to put God on trial. Essentially, they're questioning God's actions and how he deals with man. And they wanted to accuse God of, of essentially playing games with the deliverance of Israel. So the Israelites were saying, well, you know, if you really, God, if you really wanted to save us, who could resist your will? And honestly, if you're not going to save all of us, then we believe something that Paul is teaching is certainly false. And so Paul is getting right down to these questions that are posed not only about God to challenge God, because ultimately that is the challenge. But these questions are also challenging Paul, the apostle, where he agrees with what Christ taught and what God taught. But it is this subtle accusation. And we see it in verse 19 as Paul frames it as a question that I believe he really received these kind of accusations and questions against his teaching. But it's the kind of question that accuses God of playing games with the deliverance of Israel. And furthermore, if God is somehow inept, if he's incompetent in delivering on the promise that he would save the remnant, then somehow, falsely stated, he would need help from man. So mankind would then need to construct a system, a belief system that would somehow help God established deliverance for Israel. And I believe that is where we are today. I believe that many, so many uh, believe that God needs help in so many arenas. It's why uh, even this glorious day where we certainly, I would say, emphasize to a larger degree uh, what Christ has accomplished because chronologically we commemorate it as such. So many have turned it into an event. And it's an event because they believe God needs help. He needs help. His message of the cross, foolishness as it is to the world, it's not good enough to draw the crowd. So somehow we have to draw the crowd and we'll figure out how to massage the message. But what we're looking at this morning is we're looking at who God is. And we will continue to look at who God is and what he has accomplished with the understanding that he doesn't need our help. He needs us to proclaim who he is, what he's accomplished according to his word, whether it's a crowd of 5,000 or a crowd of five. And that's what Paul is all about. He's dealing with the fact that there is a multitude called Israel, but Paul is not saying, let's figure out how to condition and set the mood and do all these things to draw the whole nation to God. He's saying, no, the nation is cast out. We need to explain why only a few of them are going to be saved. So the whole nation appeared to be righteous in and of themselves, but it was only a few that God was truly going to save. And so that is certainly what is 
God's plan. And God doesn't need help with that plan. But essentially what they were what they were questioning, uh, it says it in verse 19, you will say to me then after Paul's statement, why does he still find fault? So if God can grant mercy, according to verse 18, on whom he desires, and if he can harden whom he desires, then the response would be from these people who accuse Paul is, why does he still find fault? Why is he still charging people as guilty if he can override their guilt, if he can override their unbelief? For who can truly resist his will? If he's God, if he has all power, then who can truly resist him? And then and then it, it remains, why only have a remnant, a select few who are being saved among the people? Why not just save them all? Why not choose to grant compassion to all Israelites is the question that Paul faced. Why not eliminate the hardening process altogether? Why not, as we said the last time we were together, just skip over Israel's disobedience, place it to the side and grant the kingdom to Israel at large. Just give them a kingdom in spite of themselves. Why not do this? And I believe that this is the same, as we've said last time, this is the same line of questioning that man makes today regarding the matters of his own soul. Instead of dealing with who he is and where he is before God, he begins to question God. And he begins to try to change the terms that God has set for the salvation of his soul. And he thinks that this argument is airtight. He thinks that because he poses a philosophical problem for God, because let's be honest, this is who the Jews became to this point in their history, that they were drinking from the philosophy of the world and beginning to question God in the same way the world does. So. They think this is airtight. They think this philosophical problem that they present to God is somehow a problem for God. And some even believe, as we have said, that on this basis, the fact that God can override everyone, we're all not that bad. And we all can somehow arrive to the glory of the kingdom uh, based on God overriding certain things, even though we are performing unrighteousness. And this is what the Jews thought. To be quite honest with you, this is how historical Israel, as you read through the Old Testament, this is how historical Israel thought about themselves in their own self-righteousness. I recognize even as we're reading through Leviticus in our scripture reading, as you look at that, you at times may be tempted to get lost in the details of Leviticus. But what you see in Leviticus is you see God's precision. You see God saying you are not a righteous people. So I'm going to raise up among you priests and I'm going to give you very specific examples on how to fulfill a covenant that is based on the condition of your obedience. And when you fail, you had better be ready to confess. And if you are not ready to confess, you demonstrate that you are not my people. And so there is a distinction, a holiness that God expects. And that holiness is certainly tied up in his very person. And he binds man to that standard. And that standard has never changed from the Old Testament all the way through the intertestamental between the Testaments all the way to the New Testament. But historical Israel, in everything they were given, they always thought that they themselves were self-righteous. They always thought this in the face of God's clear testimony, in the absence of God's clear testimony. They believe themselves to be righteous to the point that when Jesus shows up, they believe they do not need what he is proclaiming they need for themselves. Namely, they need to be made righteous. They need to confess their sins. They need to fall on their face and trust in him alone. They did not need a Messiah who would go to the cross, which is what all these covenants pointed to. They felt like they did not need that. In fact, because of the line of questioning that Paul is dealing with, in verse 19, they believed it were impossible for God to render an eternally guilty verdict toward them related to the bar of his righteousness, the standard of his righteousness, bar being a legal term that I'm using. They believe that God would not 
render a guilty verdict against them because of what he gave them. But what they weren't understanding is it's not about what you are given. It's about what you do in the face of what you're given. Do you obey the clear revelation? It's not about having the revelation. It's not about even calling yourself a Christian or a church. It's about what do you do to agree with the fact uh, that you are a Christian or a church? Or what do you do to disagree with that fact? But related to the Israelites, to take it back to its historical context, they were called Jews, but they were not acting like the Israel of God. And so you see that this is a very real challenge. You see that uh, even as Paul continues, he begins to deal with them from the aspect of creation. So he says in verse 19, you will you will say to me then, why does he still find fault for who resists his will? God is powerful enough. Why can't he just save us all? Look what Paul says. Paul doesn't begin to try to do a logical equation, uh, some kind of uh, some kind of attempt to provide an argument. Look at what he says in verse 20. On the contrary, who are you? On the contrary, who are you? O man who answers back to God. And the question is to deal with the fact that God defines who man is and God defines the reach of what man ought to do in the face of clear testimony concerning himself. The thing molded will not say to the molder, why did you make me like this? Will it? He's speaking about uh, a craftsman, a potter. He's given an analogy in that way. And most of the, the rest of what we'll deal with will be in that context. But look what he says in verse 21. Or does not the potter have a right over the clay to make from the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for common use? And we'll get to the rest of it. But that's a very important statement. On the contrary, who are you? It's a contrary statement because in light of when, 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 when mankind begins to question God related to his redemptive plan, they have forgotten their place. It is why Paul says what he says. And they've not only forgotten their place, they're assaulting the one who created them. So when man begins to pose these questions, these questions that so many get excited about, they write books about it. They have seminars, conferences. All kinds of things are related to asking the kind of questions that God certainly does not entertain. Man entertains these questions, but God doesn't. Because the answer is always the same. On the contrary, who are you? Who are you, O man, who answers back to God? God sees this as backtalk. He sees it as challenging him in a way that you had better not step in the ring with the Almighty One and challenge him this way. Why? Because true belief is grounded in faith. It's not grounded in blind acceptance. It's grounded in faith and conviction that you study something to a point that by God's spirit living inside of you, you agree with. It. And not only do you agree with it, you not only own it, but you understand it and you understand that it is divine wisdom outside of yourself. So men are not becoming more enlightened as they try to help God with their sinful processes and move things along. But on the contrary, he says, who who are you, O man, who answers back to God? The thing molded. So he sees mankind. He sees the Jews, particularly Israelites and the Gentiles. He sees them as being molded by the hands of God. In terms of them being created. The thing molded will not say to the molder, why did you make me like this? Will it? God is under no obligation to answer mankind's wicked questions that would seem to strike at the creator himself who made them. And I know in several places this morning, they're probably speaking about some facet of the crucifixion. Some facet of the trial of Christ. And when you think about those events, why Jesus kept silent, because God is under no obligation to offer an answer to the ones he created who try to challenge him as though he's not the creator. 
And I will tell you, you can look at Israel's pragmatism and you can look at the pragmatism of so many men today. Just because it's lucrative, just because men continue in the thing they're doing that is against God, they will go further and further and further and further in it and further away from God. It doesn't mean they're getting closer to God because God hasn't said anything. And it doesn't mean they're growing closer to God because, quite frankly, God speaks in his word. But if it can't be found in his word and they're doing it, it's not sanctioned by him and he will not answer to it. He will not be involved with it. He won't lend himself to it. And so what man will be faced with is what Israel was faced with. Either you change the terms that God has set forth or you change the standard. And you lower the standard so that you can either meet or exceed the standard. And then you turn around and you face the people and you say, we're a church. But what I'm here to tell you this morning is that God does what he does according to the counsel of his own will. And that's what Paul is saying. And Paul is saying he's always been this way. He's always been this way. We don't stand up and make an apology for how God is because that's to attack God's essential uh, nature. So the thing does not the thing molded does not say to the to the potter, why would you make me like this? And we said before, it's very similar to his answer to Job. It's no doubt that Paul brought in uh, probably one of the oldest written Old Testament uh, books uh, in the Bible itself. Uh, and, and in the Old Testament, of course. But verse four of Job, chapter 38, we talked about this a little bit last time. Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? This is when Job wants to question God's dealings with him. But Job was a righteous man and he wanted an answer. And God gave him the same answer. Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. That was God's answer to him. Now, as I mentioned before, Job is a righteous man. He's a blameless man. He just went through losing everything. But the answer to him is the same. But as I've said, you see a different response from Job. In Job chapter 40, then the Lord, uh, verse 1, the Lord said to Job, will the fault finder contend with the Almighty? Let him reprove God, answer it. So God saw this as a reproof. You don't come up to God and correct God. God is not in need of any man's correction. Man has to get in line with God's will, God's processes, God's timing, everything that God is doing according to his word. Anything else that man tries to do, God sees as an open challenge against his nature and his word. Then Job answered the Lord and said, behold, I am insignificant. Think of how many men don't believe themselves to be personally insignificant in the annals of true biblical Christianity. They don't believe they're insignificant because they spend all their time telling you how significant they are. But Job's answer is an answer of faith. The Israelites answer in Romans nine is not an answer of faith. They continue to challenge him. And throughout the New Testament, they continue to challenge his apostles as though their teaching is not from God. But look at what Job says. This is this is humility. He says, behold, I am insignificant. What can I reply to you? I can't answer you, God. I can't be a fault finder who contends successfully against the almighty. So what does he say? I lay my hand on my mouth. I shut up. I won't continue to speak once I have spoken and I will not answer even twice. And I will add nothing more. I ask you one time. And you answered and the answer was good enough. I don't have an open challenge to ask you again because you are right. Just imagine what the church would actually look like if the church actually practiced that, that God's word is actually good enough and I will not contend with his word. But from the Israelites, this answer is not so. And it's not so among many who find fault with God's dealings with Israel and the Gentiles. So you see that I mentioned in verse 20, Paul puts a stop to it. He puts a stop to it. Essentially, uh, after what God says, that's enough that needs to be said. Uh, he asked another question. Look at verse 21. It does not the potter have a right over the clay to make from the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another 
for common use. That's the second part of it. So, again, Paul doesn't entertain this endless questioning of why from man. He doesn't entertain that. He deals with this analogy from pottery that essentially man, particularly he's dealing with the Israelites, man does not have the ability to choose how he's molded. If you were to take clay and you were to do you know, basket weaving, I don't know all the terminology, unfortunately, but you do basket weaving and you begin to weave, you know, uh, you're trying to make some form of pottery. Well, it's going to conform to your techniques. It's going to conform to your hands. And I'm sure that there is very intricate techniques involved with that process. But that's the idea. And the people of that time would have known because that was certainly a welcomed and open trade in that society. But essentially, it it conforms, the clay conforms to the shape you give it. It conforms to the hands and the movements of the hands that create it as it does. And listen, the potter makes what he chooses. The potter doesn't ask the clay, what would you like to be today? Now you have a society who is walking up to people and asking them, what do they think they are in the annals of uh, gender, fluidity, and all those things. But the potter doesn't ask you, what do you want to be? He makes you what you are. And then he says, now I want you to conform to my will because I've created you. That's what Paul is dealing with. But in no way can the clay say, why do you make me like this? Because the clay is not the potter, and the potter is not the clay. But then it answers the question related to evil, because not every piece of clay is fit for use. Not every piece of clay is fit for use. And how do we get to this point? How do we account for this? Well, I want you to look very carefully at the passage, because so many have said so many things about this passage. But verse 21, he asks another question. Or does not the potter have a right over the clay? Look at this. It's a very key phrase to make from the same lump, from the same lump, one vessel for honorable use and another for common use. Listen to this. There are not two lumps of clay involved. There's not a righteous lump and there's not an unrighteous lump. There is one lump that God uses. And from that, he wants to use it for whatever purposes he designates for it. There is one lump, not two. There is only one lump of clay that God is working with, and both are, prior to his working, unfit for anything. They're both useless until the potter actually places his hands upon them and puts it to use. So it's one lump of clay that he has, and they're not honorable until they're met with his hands. The clay is not honorable until it's met with his hands, and it's not designated for any common use until it is uh, set in his hands. But I'll tell you that, uh, you know, in the in the Greek language, it's not simply common. I think this is a softer translation. It's actually a, dishon a dishonorable vessel. So it's honor versus dishonor. And it's not immediately discarded and thrown away. That's not the idea. But it is useful. Listen to this for dishonorable purposes. Meaning that God is not the one who crafts the dishonor. It's that it is useful for dishonorable purposes and God will overwrite anything that will cause any detraction from his honor. However, the vessel the potter uses for honorable use is useful for honor. It's useful for honor and distinct from the common. Essentially, what Paul is saying is he's dealing with this in the area of deliverance and salvation. Not every person is going to be saved, but every person has been created by God. And God has, from among the whole general populace, has chosen some that he will save, and there are some whom he has passed over and will not be saved. And we'll get to that part that's coming up next. But as I've said, God did not originally make the clay dishonorable. He found the clay. He found it in its state. He found one lump and all of it was dishonorable. And he found the whole lump of clay. He found it at first as such. He made one vessel of clay honorable and in doing so fashioned as dishonorable 
the other portion of it. And listen, what this does is it doesn't make God guilty of dishonor in anyone. It makes him worthy of praise for the honor he gives to the son. Verse 22, Paul goes right to it. Look at verse 22. What if God, although willing to demonstrate his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction uh, for destruction? Listen to this. The, the dishonorable. Why do why do wicked people? Why do dishonorable people? Why do the, the, the Jews in this context, the Israelites or Israel, why do they exist at wholesale and God doesn't simply wipe them off the face of the earth or wipe all mankind off the face of the earth. Well, first, in the Noahic covenant, after the flood, he promises he's not going to do that. He's not going to wipe everybody out uh, once and for all. But secondly, they exist for this reason. It is to show the depth of God's patience toward those who persist in his wrath toward destruction. That God is glorious in his patience. He's glorious in his patience because he has every right to immediately jump from being glorious in mercy to glorious in wrath and wiping out those who do not conform to his will. But what he has to do is he has to make his power known, as Paul says, and that's what he's doing. He made his power essentially makes his power known in his wrath. And listen, this is the problem that many people have with God. God does not save all people because he will be glorious in his wrath, just as he is glorious in his mercy and his compassion. That is why, because wrath is also who he is. And so he's going to be glorious in his wrath and glorious in his mercy. And I'll go a step further, that God will be most glorified in the sinner, even if the unbelieving sinner is not satisfied in him. God will be most glorified in the sinner, even if the unbeliever is not satisfied in him because of what Paul says here, because he will make his power known in his wrath and destruction of the sinner. And along the way, he was patient. He didn't do it immediately. You have a believer and an unbeliever and we all woke up this morning and we all breathed the same air. Some of us, uh, you know, some of us did the same things today. Because today is a day where everybody scatters to a place of sentiment and we all end up there. But God was patient with some unto that uh, wrath that he has designated for them. And for some, he has most certainly granted his salvation and mercy and compassion. And he is worthy to be praised in both accounts because that is who he is. That is what Paul is dealing with. He's dealing with it among Israel. But listen, he'll also be glorified in his own as he makes his power known in them related to his salvation. I believe it provides an encouragement. It is why it is why when evil persists and evil men persist, it is why we can be encouraged that God is still doing what he pleases because he's making his power known in them through his mercy, through his patience and through his wrath, if necessary. So I'll tell you this, man's uh, man's satisfaction, because I think we have to talk about this, man's satisfaction or his kind of existential, experiential hedonism, you know, this idea that man has to find some kind of happy place in God, uh, it's inconsequential to God's plan. So man, man is not delighting in God to such a point where that only God can move when only man is delighting in him. That's not what the Bible teaches. God is most glorified in whoever he chooses to be most glorified. However he chooses to be most glorified is however he chooses to be most glorified, whether it is in his wrath or mercy. And I think it's important because I believe that what we have inherited in the last 15 years I believe what we have inherited is somehow this belief that God is captive to man's perception of his glory. And I think that's why buildings are full this morning, because they believe to make God glorious, we have to put on an event. And as man aspires to make God glorious, that event has to be heightened one year to the next. But God is not captive to man's perception of his glory. In fact, 
God doesn't need help. And in fact, if you challenge God in this area enough, he'll answer the same way that he answered uh, Job and that he answers through Paul in his teaching about the Israelites. God is not captive and waiting for man. According to this, he's not captive and waiting for man to be satisfied so that God can be glorious. He's not captive and waiting for man to be satisfied so that God can be glorious. So this is what we're looking at in this last section. And I don't believe that that teaching is new. I think it was being taught among the religious establishment in Israel at the time. And it was certainly taught in the mystery religions of the uh, ancient New Testament time. And it simply gained traction today. But God does not need man to make him glorious. He doesn't need man to make him glorious. He doesn't need your production. He doesn't need lighting. He doesn't need uh, he doesn't need a beautifully a beautiful singing choir, although it's beautiful to sing praises to God. He doesn't need any of those things. He needs the preaching of his word. He needs the obedience to his word and he needs those to follow the counsel of his will. But he's not captive and waiting for man to be satisfied so that he can be glorious. He's not waiting for that. He's all he already is glorious. He's glorious in spite of man. He's glorious when man rebels. He's glorious when man obeys. He's glorious not because of man, because he's altogether different and distinct from man. He's eternal. So as we conceive of time versus eternity, he's existed before man existed. He didn't create man because he was lonely and somehow had to. No, he created man to give him glory. So man is supposed to proclaim the glory of God himself. That's why he created man. We ran off to this point. Because I do believe I hate giving these evangelical leaders more press than they give themselves. But sometimes the content itself, uh, it begs for it. I fear that we have a generation of professing Christians who don't look at this text for what it is. And they, I believe that they have chased the wind. I believe that there's this emotional instability as we see. And I see it today because today nobody can find a parking space at your at your large mega churches. And a few weeks from now, they'll be able to find a parking space. All that is because of what I'm about to say. I believe that they have chased the wind. They have chased this emotional instability. Uh, they have chased the charismaticism of, uh, of Piper's Christian hedonism. And so many others are doing this. It's not just him. I mean, there's conservative people who are saying we preach scripture, we preach Christ. And they're doing all this emotional manipulation of people to fill a building. And when you don't feel emotionally invested, you're ap you're apathetic. And when you feel emotionally invested, God is near and nobody has a Bible open or could care less about the Bible being taught. So I have to speak to this point because coming out of charismaticism, I believe that that is what Paul is attacking, because all of the ancient religions are charismatic in nature. They are all charismatic in nature. And even when they claim to be following the scrolls, the Torah, the law. They were looking for some emotional high that somehow they could receive from God in exchange for God not dealing in intimately with their sins. And you'll see, in fact, let's turn there really quickly. You'll see. Look at this. Romans chapter 10, verses 1 to 2. We'll go there in a few weeks. But brethren, my heart's desire, my prayer to God for them is for their salvation. He's talking about his kinsmen according to the flesh, the Israelites. But look at this. Look at verse 2. For I testify about them that they have a zeal for God, but not in accordance with knowledge. Today you're told, have a zeal for God, but don't bring the knowledge with it. But Paul is saying that's a cursed position. To have a zeal for God that's not in accordance with knowledge. So you have all these people raising their hands in the air, singing and crying and having no reason to understand and no study behind them as to why God is what he is uh, concerning his perfections, why he's doing what he's doing and what the word actually says concerning his actions. And then when they do hear somebody say it, they turn and they worship the man and the man doesn't turn off the faucet of worship toward his person. I'm talking about modern evangelical sentiment that's built on the rabbinical culture. And so when you have this mentality, you have people who are just chasing emotional highs. They're chasing emotional highs. And when you stand before them and you open the word and you just give them what the word says, they don't have any use for that. 
because you're not feeding a high, a fix that they came for. And that fix is 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 so temporary and so shallow and superficial. But it is certainly lucrative. They laugh at you because they're laughing to the bank. They're laughing because you're filling that offering plate and you're filling these treasure chests with your emotional high. You just you want to pay for the high. It's a drug. You want to pay for the high. And that's what's happening. It's this idea. Here's the drug. It's this idea that man's satisfaction can move God in man's direction. Man's satisfaction can move God in man's direction. That's the high. But that is a false high. That's a dangerous high. Because essentially what the Bible teaches is God is who he says he is, always has been. And now you have to get in line with his will. And his will is plainly stated in his word. And you have to apply what the word says. That's what the Bible teaches. So we have a generation of emotionally unstable people who are calling themselves Christians. And some of them very well might be. But they are chasing this high and ecstasy of being thought of as emotionally invested because they demonstrate emotional actions. And it's chasing this desiring of who God is. It's not actually and you get to determine the depth of your desire and you get get to determine the God that you desire. But that's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches already what God desires and you have to align yourself to what he desires. And that's what Paul is saying. He's teaching that. He's teaching that here in this passage. He's teaching you that you have to you have to understand that God is glorious in his wrath and he's glorious in his mercy. You have to understand that about him. he's glorious in his wrath and he's glorious in his mercy. But it seems that these people today, I don't want you to get an unclear picture. I've said it in its temporary context. I, I don't like mentioning people uh, for the simple fact that they already have teams of people, you know, uh, putting their image and their likeness over everything and making it lucrative for them to do so. But I think sometimes you have to say some things, but they weren't the first. I don't want to give anybody impression who's teaching this hedonism that they're the first. They're not. Apostate Jews were the first. In the line of people who were religiously endowed with all of God's revelation to that point, who are the first to say, well, approach God this way. Leave the knowledge at home, have the zeal, and somehow you can determine who God is. They're the first. Because I don't, I don't, I don't believe that the modern people are the first because Paul identifies his opponents along these same lines. But listen, it all boils down to this. Let me not sanitize it for you. It boils it down to... To man placing God on trial and wanting God's answers to fit man's scheme on how the Jews and Gentiles should both be delivered and should both experience God's glory. And if you if you approach God that way, you will fall very short because you can't approach God experientially apart from the revealed testimony he has concerning himself. You'll end up in apostasy. You'll end up in compromising relationships. You'll end up in sin and you'll end up uh, dethroning the same glory that you claim you're representing. And I'll tell you, it's not up for man to decide. It's not up for man to decide how God ought to be glorified. It's up to God to decide. And he's already decided. It has never been up to man to decide, even according to the Old Testament. God has in verse 22 exercised patience in those who have been fitted for destruction. We don't lower the bar and expectation among those who are fitted for destruction. We don't know who they are at all times, but we don't lower the bar because we don't know. You proclaim openly what God's standard is. But the grammar for these vessels of wrath, I want to show it to you because it's an important distinction and we're drawing to our close. But I want to show you these these vessels of wrath. The idea here is. He says it in a way that uh, aligns to the perfect tense, which is a completed action with continual results. Okay, it's a completed action. The action has been completed and the results continue. But the grammar for these vessels of wrath, having been fitted, having been fitted, it's it signifies that they have already been resigned to this state 
in some completed action. Okay, but the results of this are continuous. I would take this in the passive voice, so to speak, something that happened upon them, namely the fall. And from the standpoint of this text, from the standpoint of even the tense and the and the context, they are resigned to God's wrath. Listen, the unbeliever was acted upon. That's what the passive designates. They're acted upon. Something happens to them. And they're fitted as a vessel of wrath. Some would take it as middle. I think middle is when you act on the benefit of yourself toward one another. I think if you take it that way, I think the problem is you eliminate the grand event of the fall that has touched every person in this instance. But they're fitted as a vessel of wrath. Thus will experience the fullness of destruction and judgment after, after, after the results of such sinful acts run their course. Okay, so God did not commit the sinful acts. God did not institute the sinful acts. God simply created mankind and mankind had fallen. So you have this, too, that and and this is all in comparing the vessels of wrath and vessels of mercy. I think that's very important to compare it as we look at it in verses 21 and 22, 22. What if God, although willing to demonstrate his wrath and to make known his power, endured with much patience, vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? And look at verse 23. And he did so to make known the riches of his glory upon vessels of mercy. Look how the word order and the, and the words change. And the words themselves in the Greek are different when comparing the vessels of wrath and the vessels of mercy. Look at this, which he prepared beforehand for glory. It doesn't say he prepared beforehand the vessels of wrath. It says he prepared beforehand the vessels of glory. I'm going to work this out very quickly, but I'll try to be as efficient in the Lord as I can. The vessels of wrath are not, in a sense, predestined by God to that case. In fact, I will say God certainly knows they will be resigned to wrath. He knows that. He's not waiting to figure that out. But he does not actively author the evil within them. He doesn't actively author or create the evil within them or the evil they will ascribe to. Here is what he does, given the tenses, given the grammar, given the word choice. He permits the vessels of wrath to take their course and fits them for the destruction they will face after the fall. He fits them for it. It is altogether different for the vessels of mercy. So. Again, what he does is he does not actively author the evil within them because God is not the author of evil. The Bible says that explicitly or the evil they will ascribe to. He permits the vessels of wrath to take their course. That's Romans one. We could stay right in Romans and understand that's what Romans teaches. He permits them to do so and then he fits them for the destruction they will face. He fits them for it. It is altogether different for the vessels of mercy. And the grammar, as I've said, is even distinct from vessels of wrath. For one, the word for prepared, quote unquote, beforehand is different. The word is different from the after the fact preparation the vessels of wrath receive in their fitting. It's, it's altogether two different words that are used so you can't apply the same concept to both. The vessels of mercy are fitted in a predestined sense. You can even see this grammatically. They're fitted in a predestined sense. God chooses them to the state of mercy and compassion. He elects them before the foundation of the world. He pulls them out and selects them unto salvation and grants them mercy in Christ that will be made manifest through the duration of their lifetime as they are born, living, and then they face death in him. He predestines them to that. He chooses them beforehand. Paul says that very plainly. The vessels of mercy are fitted in that predestined sense. The vessels of wrath are fitted after events that cause them the need to be fitted. So in that sense, the vessels of wrath do something and therefore God responds in a certain way toward their action. But if you look a little deeper at this, look at the events of the Exodus and the Passover. He needs only pass over those who will not respond to faith in him. And they are in the same destructive state that they have been in otherwise. That is what Paul says concerning the one lump. 
He's simply re-explaining it, and he's simply giving you another facet of it related to pottery. But vessels of mercy are prepared for glory before the earth is established according to divine decree. Let me say that again. Vessels of mercy are prepared for glory before the earth is established according to divine decree. In other words, they are fit in advance, as the simple Greek definition says. They are fit in advance. And the translators chose prepared beforehand, but they are essentially fit in advance. These things are important and they're important. A lot of people will try to make it seem as talk over your head because they don't understand it. So they're talking over your head. They're jumping on podcasts. They're saying all this stuff concerning this doctrine. And they make no sense because they don't understand it. And they don't understand it because they don't want to seem as though they understand it. They want to seem wise before you. But these things are important to explain. These small nuances that would seem small are very significant, even grammatically. Why? Because it's dealing with God's inner workings of his decrees for the Jews and for the Gentiles. So you have to know it, you have to explain it, and you have to believe it. But they're important because to understand God's working in his decree is to understand why his decrees express who he is. It's to ward off all attempts to get you to believe that God's not going to deal specifically with Israel in a very specific manner. But it's also how he's going to ultimately bring his salvation to pass among remnant Jews and some from among the Gentiles. You will fight on every hill and every hill matters when you understand how God has worked out salvation and the redemptive plan he has for salvation all the way throughout the history of the world, including the testimony of his word. When we look at this. Paul will begin to bring in uh, Old Testament prophets, particularly beginning with Hosea and Isaiah. And uh, we will explore next time how God's salvation among the Jews and how God will act on their behalf to save the women. We'll look at that next time. Let's pray.